Thank you for listening to the Rivers Church podcast with Pastor Andre and the Rivers team. Be sure to subscribe for a weekly dose of encouragement and inspiration to help your daily life. We pray that this message will help in whatever season of life you might be in. I trust that you've been enjoying this Genesis series as much as I've enjoyed teaching it. And we come to part nine today. To recap before we get into the meat of the text, I want to say a number of things and remind us of some very important things. This is the second longest book in the Bible, the longest being Jeremiah. 50 chapters with lots of characters, lots of detail, and most of all, it speaks to us of our foundations. It tells us why we are where we are and how we need to live. It gives us an idea of, of our, who created us, why God created us, how He created us, the genders He created us to be, marriage, sin, salvation, work, purpose, the different dimensions of our lives are all encapsulated in this book, and from here the scripture unfolds. So the first 12 chapters are incredibly important. We discovered the origin of nations, the origin of languages, the origin of the Jewish nation, and their centrality in the life, obviously emitting or or, or coming from Abraham, we see the centrality of them, and then ultimately the Christian nation from which God said he would bless all the nations through Jesus Christ. And uh, so very important book, factual and detailed, because from the book of Genesis would emerge the line of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And you can, uh, let me put it this way, you have to avoid the, the constant accusations that come against the book of Genesis. It's fables and it's and it's just, uh, you know, it's just poetic. No, it's not. You can almost feel unscientific if you believe it. But it's a powerful book. Michael Foster said this. He said, the Christian doctrine of creation is the origin of modern science. And so God in his word, in the book of Genesis, puts his stamp and his authority and his foundation before us that we might build our lives on it. In fact, R.C. Sproul, the great author and preacher, He said this, he said, the very word authority has within it the word author. An author is someone who creates and possesses a particular work. Insofar as God is the foundation of all authority, he exercises that foundation because he's the author and owner of his creation. He is the foundation upon which all other authority stands or falls. Today, people are rejecting authority. We're making up our own truth. We are our own authority, but Genesis draws us back and says, no, God is the foundation of authority, and Genesis is the foundation of your life and your beliefs. You need to hold fast to it because our foundations are being eroded. The psalmist reminds us here in Psalm 11 and verse 3, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, it's very simple what the righteous can do. They can study the scriptures and study the revelation of God through scripture and establish their foundations. Two-thirds of the young people in America are leaving the church. It's not a mystery why. When they interview them, this is what they say. They've got no biblical foundation. They have all sorts of other beliefs, but their foundation is eroded. And so we have been studying this book and looking at at its... its, uh, It's truth and trying to decide how we need to navigate our lives. One of the great uh, Jewish authors, the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, he said of studying 
the books of the Bible, especially the first five books, which they call the Torah, he said this, to understand a book, one needs to know which genre it belongs. It is history or legend, chronicle or myth. To what question is it an answer? A history book answers the question, what happened? A book of cosmology, be it science or myth, answers the question, how did it happen? If we seek to understand the Torah, we must read it as Torah, as law, instruction, teaching, guidance. Torah, first five books of the Bible, is an answer to the question, how shall we live? So we're not studying it just to get information. We're finding out who we are, why we are, and how we should live. And it is our foundation, and our foundation comes from the author, God himself. Are you with me? And uh, we've been reading about this patriarch Abraham as we came into chapter 11, into chapter 12, the importance of his life. He's called the father of our faith in the New Testament. He's the father of the Jewish nation. In fact, he's the father of three religions, the Jews, Christianity, and Islam. His son Ishmael, who God rejected, was the father of the Muslim nation. And so he's considered the father of all three great religions in the world. And God called this man, this important figure, you know, 14 out of the uh, 50 chapters in the book of Genesis are about him, 28%. So he's an important figure, and God calls him from Ur of the Chaldees, and he takes him to. How many of you know that's what God's calling us to do? He's calling us from something, and he's taking us to something. Are you with me? And in order to go to to something in God, you've got to leave something. And so God calls this man, promises him in Genesis 12, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make your name great from you, I'm going to become a great nation, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you, and anyone who curses you, I will curse, anyone who blesses you, I will bless. And so from him come the Jewish nation, and then ultimately the Christian nation through his descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Winston Churchill, in speaking about the Jews as God's chosen people, he says, some people like the Jews and some do not, but no thoughtful man can deny the fact that they are beyond any question the most formidable and most remarkable race which has appeared in the world. Many great men have acknowledged that. In fact, Jean-Jacques Rousseau of the uh, time of the French Revolution before the Jewish nation was formed said this of the Jews. He says, the Jews present us with an outstanding spectacle. The laws of the ancient kingdoms of Numa, Lysurgus, and Solon are dead. The far more ancient ones of Moses are still alive. Athens, Sparta, and Rome have perished, and all their people have vanished from the earth. Though destroyed, Zion has not lost her children. They mingle with all the nations, but are never lost among them. They no longer have leaders, yet they are still a nation. They no longer have a country, and yet they are still citizens." speaking before the formation of the state of Israel in 1948. So the Jews come from Abraham, powerful nation, influential nation, and we've studied all that. But today we're just going to move now from here into studying the rest of Abraham's life. But before we get there, I want to mention two important things. Joshua and Stephen in the New Testament speak about Abraham. And before I unpack him, I want to read what Joshua chapter 24 says, because it tells us something about the man Abraham, and Joshua here speaking about his background says this in Joshua 24. Are you all with me? 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abram and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. If you're making notes in your book, very important to notice that Abraham was a worshipper with his family of idols. They had a religion of sorts, but God called him away from that. It says in verse 3, But I took your father Abram from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. So God chose Abraham and called him out of idol worship from that to something new. And Stephen recounts this amazing event in Acts chapter 7. He's preaching to the Jews and he says, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abram in Mesopotamia before he settled in Iran. So Abram apparently had a visitation from the Lord. God appeared to him. He didn't just get like a voice in his head, you know, almost like schizophrenia. I think it could be God. Maybe I'm going mad. Now God appeared to him, Stephen says, and called him out of that idol worship. And when we study the scriptures, we discover there's several appearances of God himself to Abraham. In fact, God appears to Abraham while he's in the tent at Mamre and tells him he's going to have a child called Isaac. In fact, his wife laughs. That's where the name Isaac comes from. And uh, three men appear to him, and he calls them singularly, my Lord. And so we see throughout Abraham's encounter, God appears to him. Three men he discusses, uh, three men discuss with him the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he addresses them in the singular. Three men go down to Sodom and Gomorrah uh, to rescue Lot, and we believe it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus said this, he said, Abraham saw my day and was glad. So clearly this, this powerful visitation comes to this ordinary man with weaknesses and failings and calls him from idol worship to something significant, a very powerful event in the Bible. In fact, it speaks of salvation. God, through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, comes to us and speaks to us through his word, calls us from a life of emptiness and worshiping all sorts of other things to serve his son and to believe him and to take us later to a land he will show us called heaven. Are you with me? And so he's an important figure in the Bible, and he stands out because he was very different to Adam, to Noah, to the Tower of Babel. In fact, in the wonderful book called Covenant and Conversation by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, he compares Abraham to them. And I want to read that to you before we get into read Genesis chapter 12 in just a moment. You all good? He says, unlike Adam, Abraham accepts personal responsibility, heeding the word of God and setting out on a journey in obedience to the divine call. Adam is exiled from Eden against his will. Abraham undergoes a kind of voluntary exile, bidding farewell to the familiar in search of the unknown, guided only by the voice of God. Then he says, unlike Cain, he accepts moral responsibility, rescuing his nephew Lot from war. He is his brother's, more precisely his brother's son's keeper. In contrast to Noah, he accepts collective responsibility. He prays for the inhabitants of Sodom, even though he knows they are sinful, on the grounds that there may be innocent, righteous people among them. In contrast to the builders of Babel, he says, he understands the duty of human beings to respond to the otherness and the command of God. 
You heard that this morning. This is the basis of the greatest of his trials, his willingness to sacrifice even if his son, even his son if God so commands. Then he finally says this, Abraham is a new human type, the person whose life is a response to the call of God. So we see a new beginning with this man. New beginning in Noah, but a new beginning with Abraham. And Abraham is a picture of the new beginning that we have in Christ. Are you all with me? So I'm setting the stage as we now unpack this absolutely ordinary man's life. Genesis chapter 12 and reading from verse 6 to verse 10. Are you ready? It says, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. Now notice, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land, enemies. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. I mean, you know, when God promises you something, doesn't mean there aren't challenges. There can be a promise of God to you, but you face immediate challenges. God can promise to bless your life and give you a business, give you a family, but you'll often face obstacles. The doctors will tell you that you can't have a baby or the economy will point to the fact that you can't start a business. No, you'd hold on to the promises of God. We read here, so he built an altar to the Lord, there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. Notice the first thing he did was build an altar in worship. Worship does not just come from music, it comes from revelation. And it's so important for you not to think, oh, I don't like that song, I can't worship. No, no, maybe you can't sing along because it might not be your style of music. That's not the issue. Worship should come from revelation, of discovering who God is and what he wants to do in and through you. That's where worship flows from. So he builds an altar and uh, to the Lord who appeared to him, it says, and from there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent. Notice, built his altar, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Then it says again, there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Can you see his altars were more important than his tents? Let me ask you this question this morning uh, as we pause. Are you building tents and pitching altars? Do you come to church now and again when it suits you, but you really are building your life and focusing on your home and your car and your business? Or are you building your altars and then pitching your tents? Because bear in mind, your tents will disappear, but your altars will go with you into eternity. And he goes on to say, then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land. Can you see another obstacle? And Abram went down to Egypt. You always go down when you go to the world. He went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Can you see here, as we stop at this point, can you see that you can be in the perfect will of God, having heard the voice of God, having obeyed the Lord, and still end up in a place of lack? It doesn't mean that everything God tells you to do will result in immediate blessing. There will be obstacles. But those obstacles are often used by God to test us to see whether we're going to trust Him or rely on ourselves. Now, in a moment, we're going to read further on. But we can have famines in our lives. You can have a famine of work, a famine of a job, a famine of relationships, a famine of income, a famine of customers, 
a famine of contacts, a famine of, of, of tenders, whatever it is you're involved in, or contracts, there can come a famine, but you can be perfectly in the will of God. The thing you mustn't do is don't go down to Egypt. Don't stay away from church because a famine presents itself. A famine is a test of faith. Are you with me? And I want to remind you, sometimes when you hear the word of the Lord and you, and you, and you rise and you go, oh, that's great. Faith is often followed by famine. And God uses it in your life to work in your life. And here, the granary of the east, as it was known, Egypt, because of this amazing Nile River, was flourishing. But they also, at some stage, had a famine during the time of Joseph. During the time of Isaac, there were famines. And God allows famines in order to test us. In fact, his way of working is to give us famines in the midst of our faith. Even Jesus, when he got the will of God and the anointing of God, when he went, he went into the waters of baptism, and, and the, the Bible says as he was being baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on him. Immediately after that comes a famine. In fact, he goes into a period of 40 days of fasting. Mark chapter 1 and verse 12. It says the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. See, Jesus experiences a famine in the midst of his mission, but he holds fast. You and I have to do the same. We have to trust God. And the danger of famines is that they try to get us into a place where there's a famine of heart. We've got to persevere and continue. And here he's faced with this famine. And you'll notice as we read on now, that the first words of Abraham are not words of faith, they're words of fear. Notice as we read on in verse 11 of Genesis 12. You all still good? It says, as he was about to enter Egypt, here are his first words, he said to his wife Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Well, let me pause there because I've heard people say the Bible's incorrect, it's inaccurate, she wasn't young, she was already 65, so it can't be true. Wait. And I encourage you, stop reading on the internet and getting your truth from there. Come to church. And listen to those who know scripture and expound it correctly. Sarah lived to 127. So 65 was nothing. She was still groovy. Wait. She was not a hard worker. She came from wealth. So her hands and her nails and her hair and her face and her skin, she lived a life with servants. She was like a Santon Kugel. Are you with me? So she was beautiful, and so outstanding were her features that she was noticed by people, and this brought fear to Abraham as he journeyed on with God. He says here, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Why does he think this? Before we read on, why does he think his life will be spared? Well, here's the thing. When you were a husband to a beautiful woman and someone wanted you, they would get rid of you, finish and claw, and then they could marry you. But when you had a brother, they needed to respect the family and negotiate. Some African cultures understand the process of negotiation. It can go on endlessly until both parties are satisfied. Abraham understood this. He says, hang on a minute. If I'm your brother, they'll negotiate. But if I'm your husband, they'll wipe me out. 
Well, the Bible goes on to tell us that when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians indeed saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And she was taken into his palace. Now, when, I, when it says he was, they, he was taken into her palace, she was not put in some room and said, you can live here. She was taken into the palace, into the main bedroom of the palace. No, no, he's, you can miss it if you're not careful. You'd be like, oh, she's taken into the palace. No, 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 no. He took her for one purpose. Now, because she was barren, she didn't have children. But you understand what Abraham did here? Ended up his wife having sleeping with an Egyptian pharaoh. You've got to be careful who you get into bed with. You've got to be careful the decisions you make using your own wisdom take you down a road that's very dangerous. When God has given you promises, He wants you to live by faith. Can you say amen? Now notice here, the result of this, you, you, if you spoke to Abraham, so it's worked out pretty well. It says He treated Abraham well for her sake. And Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. This is, this is good. But I love what the next verse says. And whenever the Bible uses the word but, you need to pay attention. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. You see, God values marriage. Even in those days, God valued marriage. And by the way, I've heard Christians get very simplistic. God is good, he only heals, and the devil is bad, he only makes sick. No, God inflicts diseases, by the way, and he inflicted diseases on Pharaoh as a warning and as a judgment for taking another man's wife. You read in the Bible that the Lord caused blindness to come on, on, on the apostle Paul, who was Saul at the time, on the road to Damascus, and he needed someone to pray for him. And we see again in the book of Acts chapter 13, Paul speaks to Eliamus, the, 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 the magician, and he, and he says, you will go about being blind, and he curses him with blindness. So blindness and sickness can come from God in situations where we diametrically oppose the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us many are weak and sick, and many have fallen asleep. We've got to walk and live right. Otherwise, we can incur judgment because God has got certain values, and when they get violated, they bring about danger in our lives. Are you with me? And it's very important not to be simplistic about this. Believe God for healing. He is the healer, but don't be oversimplistic that God can't. God can do what He likes, when He likes. Are you with me? Verse 18, so Pharaoh summoned Abraham. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? In other words, he's had relations with her. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. I think the language there is like, I'm fed up. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way, watch this, with his wife and everything he had. By the way, just as we end then, just want to unpack this a bit. This is a picture of the future exodus which would take place with Israel. A pharaoh would decree that they needed to leave Egypt, and he was annoyed, and he would give them goods as they left. It was the picture here of what happened with Abram would happen with the whole nation. The Bible is full of wonderful mysteries and pictures. But what we see here is that Abraham, the famine, led him away from God, but it wasn't the famine's fault. It was his fault. He responded incorrectly to challenges and trials, and instead of trusting God, he ends up with trouble in his life. Now, 
I want you to notice it says here that he was blessed and he was given cattle and he was given male and female donkeys, but it also says this, he was given male and female slaves. What happened later when Abraham couldn't have a child? In Genesis 16, it was his wife who said, Sarah, who said, take Hagar, and it says she was the Egyptian slave. You see, the decision to not trust God and to go to Egypt led with his wife sleeping with another man and his wife suggesting that he sleeps with another woman. Sometimes the decisions to just scheme something out can lead to severe consequences in our lives. And here the Bible is pointing to some lessons that we need to learn, that we need to continue to trust God. But what the Bible here is actually showing us from the story is that Abraham was a man of faith, but he was a very ordinary person with weaknesses. And when we have weaknesses, God doesn't disqualify us. He continues to work with us so that we can grow in faith and fully trust Him. If you're a new Christian, maybe you've been saved for months, maybe years, few years, you need to keep going on with God so that you can grow in faith because you don't arrive ready-made. In fact, Martin Luther, in describing us and describing Abraham, uses the Latin, and he says of us as people, simul justice et pretica, meaning we are simultaneously just and sinner. We are right before God, but then we can fail so easily and make a mess of our lives. And in fact, it's interesting that the Encyclopedia Britannica, in describing Abraham, this great man of faith, and his weaknesses, speaks like this of him. It says, Abraham is pictured with various characteristics, a righteous man with wholehearted commitment to God, a man of peace in settling a boundary dispute with his nephew Lot, compassionate, he argues and bargains with God to spare the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's hospitable because he welcomes three visiting angels. He's a quick-acting warrior because he goes and rescues Lot and his family from a raiding party. But he's also an unscrupulous liar to save his own skin. He passes off Sarah as his sister and lets her be picked up by the Egyptian pharaoh for his harem. He appears as both a man of great spiritual depth and strength and as a person with common weaknesses and needs. Isn't that true of us? We trust God, but we've also got weaknesses. Now, that doesn't mean we can just give in to them and do what we like. No, Abraham's not sinning. In, in, he's got weaknesses and propensities, and his fears overtake him. And you know, you'll never read here that God steps in and rebukes him. What are you doing in Egypt, Abraham? No, God doesn't rebuke him, correct him, or prevent him. Abram ends up in hardship because of his decisions, and the hardship is enough to teach him a lesson. You know, some of the things that happen in your life, God doesn't step in. He lets them go because he says, you will break yourself on my commandments as you break my commandments. I don't even need to step in. And sometimes we have hardship in our lives and we wonder why. We're Christians. We're walking with God. What's happening? It's because you are, you've broken God's commands and he's leaving you to, to, to grow through them and to fully trust him, and to realize that your scheming and organizing doesn't work out. See, he called her his sister, and, and you can call things what they're not. You know, you can meet some guy, and you, it's been a long time since you had a boyfriend, and, and so you meet someone at work, and he's not saved, and he doesn't believe in Jesus, and he tells you that. And, he, and he's seen your church, Rivers on the Road at Down South Road, and he thinks it's a mall, and he doesn't want to come there. But you think, you think that you can call him, 
your brother, because he's almost saved. I know he will be. And if I bring him at Easter, he, you know, by Monday morning, we can get married. No, no, no. No, you can't scheme because you've lost your faith. There's a famine of boyfriend. There's a famine of girlfriend. There's a famine of money. Don't take bribes, scheme, or wangle. It leads to a whole series of things. Rather follow God. See, there's several consequences here. There's the sin of deception. He, he, he goes into the sin of deception and calls her... You know, he calls his sister, even though in Genesis 20, she's actually his half-sister because they have the same father. But uh, he ends up in deception. He loses his wife. Pharaoh sleeps with her. It brought disease onto the family of Pharaoh. But the worst thing is, a pagan king has to rebuke him. And can I remind you, when the church fails and ends up going down a road where it lacks faith and it starts scheming, the world will rebuke us. We will end up on YouTube being rebuked. How many of you have watched YouTube and seen the church being rebuked by pagans? That's not our destiny. We need to go on in faith. We need to trust God. And we need to serve Him fully. So we see here what happens in Abram's life. And the sad thing with Abram, and I want to make a point here, the man has weaknesses and God still chooses to go on with him. Abram didn't lie just once. In Genesis 20, he finds himself amongst the Philistines and Abimelech is the leader and Abram and Sarah together again conceive another lie and they lie to Abimelech. And they, you know, he tells her, you know, same as last time, babe. And she's like, Okay, well, you know what happened to me last time. So fear overpowers them both instead of the promises of God. You'd think it would be enough to learn the lesson once. I've been in church life long enough to know that people don't learn the lesson once. It sometimes takes them a few marriages before they then learn to go with God. Or a few mess-ups before they start learning, I better do it God's way. We read in Genesis 20, and I want to make a point here, because I want us to see something, the difference between the church and faith and the world and the way it lives. Notice in Genesis 20, it says God came to Abimelech. This is after he also took Sarah into his household. It said God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead. I mean, you know, when God tells you that trouble cometh, exceedingly quicketh. Look what it says. You are as good as dead because the woman you have taken, she is a married woman. This is not in the 21st century. This is God has val always valued marriage. And maybe the word of the Lord to someone in this room or someone watching me on YouTube is this. You're as good as dead because you're messing with stuff you shouldn't mess with. And you think it's nothing because we, you know, we love each other as if that's good enough. No, God says, God says to this heathen king, you're as good as dead. He could have said, well, he told me a story. God says, I'm holding you accountable. Don't think one party can be excused. No, no, no. Notice here. Now, Bimlech had not gone near her just as well. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she's my sister? And didn't she also say, he's my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Here you can see some important things. Firstly, God highly values marriage and the sanctity of marriage. 
And the heathen nations, even though they didn't, they still understood the importance of marriage. You know, when you talk to people in the world, they will talk about sexual freedom and having parties and threesomes and no gender and others. And then, and then suddenly they when it's judgment, like, I love what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said about this. He talks about this difference between the nation of Israel and God's chosen, God's chosen people and the heathen nations. He actually says this. He says, whenever a member of the covenantal family leaves his or her own space and enters the wider world of their contemporaries, they encounter a world of sexual freefall. In other words, there's a continuing theme in Genesis 12 to 50, a contrast between the people of the Abrahamic covenant and their neighbors. But it is not about idolatry, but rather about adultery, promiscuity, sexual license, seduction, rape, and sexually motivated violence. There's a difference between us and the world. And that's portrayed in Genesis, and God's unhappy about it. And this is the second time both Sarah and Abraham try this. And Abraham admits that he was afraid and thought that they would kill him, so he's got into fear. However, God goes on with them. Aren't you glad God goes on with us? You see, what we need to understand about Abraham is he made a journey of faith. He didn't instantly become perfect. And if you're a Christian today and you have propensities and weaknesses, don't just indulge them. Move on from them and trust God to grow you so that you can get to a place of strength. Because Abraham eventually got to a place of tremendous strength after he followed God and went on with God. And so God works with us and he'll take us on. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this about our lives in 2 Timothy. He says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. In other words, we've got to give it our all, surrender. If we endure, we will also reign with him. But watch this warning. If we deny him, he also will deny us. So you can't just do what you like and walk away from God. You've got to go on in your weakness. And then he makes this powerful statement. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. See, what it teaches us is you can't do what you like. You can't just turn away and say, I'll always be saved because Jesus died. No, no, no. We've got to go on in our weakness and our struggle trusting. And as we do, we gradually die and we grow in faith and we embrace the purposes of God. Are you with me? And that's what every Christian has to do. That's why the story is so powerful. This new beginning wasn't perfect. Our new beginning as Christians isn't perfect, but we go from strength to strength, and despite our weaknesses, God works in us and through us. You know, we often read about the heroes of the Bible, but, but they're not real heroes because the hero of the Bible is God himself, who is the one who overlooks our failings and uses us. I, I know throughout my life God has used us. He has called us to come from Cape Town, and he brought us to Santon. And when we came here, they looked at us and said, oh, couldn't they find anyone better? But God decided that if we would follow him and go with him, he would use us. And today people are amazed that we have the, a large church in Santon and we have five campuses. What did it come about from? Because I'm perfect and Vilma's perfect and we've got no weaknesses. No, ask any of our staff. They'll tell you what our weaknesses are. And they see the flaws in us. But we've gone on with him and surrendered to him. And when it came, became too big and it became too expensive and another building and, and trusting God for more money and just when it seems like we've paid everything, now we're going to buy another campus. But okay, Lord, 
God just keeps blessing and he keeps increasing and he uses the weak. It's not about us. I can list numerous greats that were used despite their weaknesses, but just let me mention two people that I'm sure you've heard of. First one is Norman Vincent Peale, the man who wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. He was a great preacher, one of the first to preach that positive sort of message. And uh, he was called a weak willy-nilly by a high school teacher in Ohio. He said he was so angry as he was growing up because of that. But later he realized the teacher was right. He was a weak willy-nilly. And throughout his career, he readily admitted that he'd have to push himself beyond self-doubt. And uh, he was a short, podgy man, fidgeted a lot before he started preaching. But every time he got up to speak and he pushed through his doubts and he relied on God, people who listened to him said he suddenly like grew into a giant as he was preaching. And he would stir them and lift them up. And he said that as he preached, he often had doubts. And he, and he said, uh, my main target for these spiritual pep rallies was actually me. Because even as recently as last night, I found myself lacking in wisdom and courage. God uses the weak who press on and trust him. You may have heard of John Wesley, his brother Charles. The two of them founded the Methodist Church. He was greatly used by God, but he had a very troubled marriage. That doesn't mean she slept around or he slept around. But it does mean that they were unhappy and he was moody and he was very busy and he was always preaching and traveling around. He also wrote letters which his wife Molly didn't like. They weren't intimate, but he would encourage women. In those days, it was scandalous to write to women and share scripture with them and encourage them. And so his wife Molly suspected infidelity. After years of conflict, she finally walked out on him and didn't return. And he didn't look for a concubine or go to any spas to find comfort. In 1771, Wesley famously wrote in his journal, in fact, his only comment on his marriage, he wrote this, I did not forsake her, I did not dismiss her, I will not recall her. You can have some serious challenges in your life, but God can still use you if you go on with him and you surrender. In fact, you one day can become really strong. And as I move to a close this morning, Paul in writing about Abraham at the end of his life and his overall life says this in Romans chapter 4, just two verses. He says of Abraham, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. You say, what? He did. Yes, but Paul is saying in the long run he didn't. In the short term he did, but in the long run he didn't. He says, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. You see, as I wrap up this morning, this is very important, Abraham went on what we call a journey of surrender. In the beginning, he could not give up Egypt. As soon as he was faced with a challenge, he went back to the world. But God taught him, let go of that. I've got better for you. And if you go to Egypt, you're going to end up in trouble. Haven't you learned the lesson twice, Abraham? And so Abraham surrenders Egypt and goes on with God. Are you with me? The second thing Abraham surrenders is his cousin, or sorry, his nephew, Lot. He surrenders Lot. He took Lot with him. The Bible says that God told him to leave Lot behind. But he takes him with because he's his brother's son, and his brother has died. So he feels a responsibility. But there's strife between Lot's 
Herdsman and Abram's herdsman. Abram realizes God knows best. So he surrenders Lot and he tells him, take the best and off you go. Genesis chapter 13. And so he surrenders Egypt. He surrenders a relative. The third thing Abram surrenders is money because money can get a hold on you when you're trying to trust God. And the kings offer him money. You've, you've fought the battle with us. You deserve a share of the spoils. And Abraham says, no, I can't take anything. I don't want it to be said that a man made Abraham rich. I'm relying on God. So he makes the third big surrender. But the fourth surrender is very hard. He takes Hagar and he has a child with her called Ishmael. And because he's been longing for a child, he wants God to bless his failure. And he says this to the Lord, oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight. And God says, no, drive out the slave woman and her son, for they will not inherit. I'm going to give Sarah a child. And so Abraham has to let go of this one child that he's been waiting for for years. He's been holding on, and he's now got to trust God. But he's learned, if I surrender Egypt, if I surrender relatives, if I surrender money, if I surrender Ishmael, God is faithful. The, hard, the hardest surrender is when you get the full blessing of God. In Genesis 22, Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac is a young man, and God says, take him up the mountain and put him on the altar and offer him to me. But Abraham has learned that when you surrender and you don't scheme, God comes through. So he takes Isaac the next morning, it says, and he takes him up the mountain and he puts him on the altar and he's about to bring the knife. Why? Because he fully believed, having been fully persuaded, he now got to the place where he was once weak, but he knew if you trust God, it works out. And so he offers him on the altar and God steps in and says, now I know that you love me. And he provides the ram in the thicket, which is a picture of Jesus. And the Bible says this, we don't have time to read it, in Genesis 22, and Abraham then dwelt at a place called Beersheba. If you're making notes, it's the place of seven wells. And they say in the original Hebrew, it implies that he lived in a place of perfect contentment and fulfillment. You want to get to a place of perfect contentment and fulfillment in God, keep letting go despite your weaknesses and keep trusting God. And he will bring you to that place in your life. As we wrap up this morning, I'm nearly done. I want to just say this as we conclude today. Don't lose your foundation. Hold on to what you've heard. Hold on to what you've been taught. The reason we have done this is because the church is shifting. Not this church, but the church worldwide is shifting away from its foundations and away from the original faith that was handed to the saints. Jude, the brother of Jesus, said this. He says, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. We have a faith that was once given. We can't dilute it and change it. We need to hold on to our foundations. And that's what I've done by teaching us Genesis. Before I pray with you this morning, how many of you have heard of the famous nursery rhyme? Ringer, ringer, rosy, pocket full of posies, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. And the kids still today, ringer, ringer, rosy, pocket full of us. And the, and the parents sit on the, on the patio watching. <laughs> and we have no idea the background or the context. 
And what's happening today is people read Scripture, but they have no idea of the background and the context. Do you know the background and context of that? It was the 1600s when the Black Plague was around. Ring-a-ring-a-roses was the way the Black Plague broke out on your skin. It was like a circle of red dots. And a pocket full of posies were those to put the roses and herbs because they believed the smell, the good smell of that would drive away demons. A tissue, a tissue is where you would sneeze as you caught it and all fall down. People would walk through the street and suddenly just drop dead. They were lying all over London. And that little simple, funny little thing came out of that tragedy. We must always understand the context of the Bible and not just smile and giggle about contemporary ideas but go back to the background, the context, and the history so that we fully understand in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been blessed and inspired by this message.